Good afternoon and welcome to Startup Nation, our weekly show that celebrates innovation and entrepreneurship. Startup Nation is brought to you by Dublin BIC, the organisation that helps ambitious entrepreneurs start and scale their business. I'm Connor Carmody. I hope you'll stay with me over the next hour as we explore the emerging technologies that are shaping our future world and we'll speak directly to founders to understand what it takes to start and grow a business. So over the course of the next hour, we'll be looking about how our world has changed in so many ways since the pandemic began. And one thing or one trend has become clear. It has vastly accelerated digital adoption and the move to online retailing. And, you know, it's clear innovations that would normally take years to even get a foothold are now just taking months or even weeks. So we'll be exploring that today. We'll be talking to some of the people that have been able to turn this adversity into an opportunity. On our Future Scope slot this week, we're going to hear from Professor Damien McLaughlin. And Damien is the Anthony C. Cunningham Professor of Marketing at UCD Michael Smurfett Graduate Business School. He'll talk about how COVID-19 has accelerated the shift in consumer behaviour from the physical to the digital world. On our One to Watch segment, we'll talk to the inspirational Sharon Keegan about her activewear startup, Peachy Lean, and how she's getting traction in the in this new world of online retailing. And I'll ask Sharon how that move to online shopping has helped her business. And finally, we'll be joined by Devon Hughes of Buy Me. Devon and Buy Me made the headlines this time last year when its on-demand grocery delivery app hit the headlines, for obvious reasons. Devon has a great story about starting and scaling and is happy to share the ups, downs, successes and failures with our Startup Nation listeners. So that's our show lineup for today. We're looking forward to having your company for the next hour. So let's get started with our Future Scope segment, where we look at an emerging trend or technology and ask our guest expert how it will shape our future lives. And today I'm delighted to be joined by Professor Damien McLaughlin. He's the Anthony C. Cunningham Professor of Marketing at UCD Michael Smurfett Graduate Business School. And we're going to talk shopping. Love it or hate it, we all have to do it. And what I do find fascinating are the changes taking place around consumer behaviour, which, as we've said, is accelerated by the pandemic and the move to online. Damien, good afternoon and thanks for joining us today. Hi, Connor. Pleasure to be with you as always. Thanks very much. It seems to me, to Damien, we're witnessing the transformation of an industry um, where, you know, I heard someone mention that e-commerce levels were at levels now that we didn't expect until 2025. What's your sense of that? The pandemic has been a great catalyst for the acceleration of trends that were already underway, Connor. That's the um, that's the conclusion I think we'd all have to draw. We were heading inexorably towards a greater impact of, of e-commerce, online shopping, whatever you'd like to call it, before the pandemic. And what the pandemic did was gave us the time and for those of us fortunate enough not to lose our jobs, the finances, the spare cash to experiment with, with online shopping. And so I think that there's been a, an acceleration in that trend. But let's be clear that the trend has been substantially underway for some time. And you can see that in books, in clothing, in in uh, personal care items, in in heavier uh, heavier household goods like, you know, nappies or diapers, the Americans call them. The number one channel for diapers in America is uh, is Amazon because who wants to go yeah. to the store and, and pick that stuff up? So um, I think this trend has been underway for some time um, and the pandemic has given us visibility on it and also accelerated the trend. 
and it's interesting, we'll, we'll hear from Devin Hughes of Buy Me later, um, but I, I saw a stat that in February, uh, online grocery sales accounted for more than 6% of all grocery sales, which seems uh, like a huge jump within a very short space of time. Um, it's, uh, the surprise that it's, is that it's so low. Yeah. The question which I ask, and I ask in class, Connor, is when was the last time you had fun going to a supermarket? <laughs> You know, you gotta you gotta get in your car which is polluting, you've gotta drive through traffic which is now a pain in the neck, you gotta park in a in a huge car park, you generally go into a large warehouse kind of operation where you push your own cart you know, up and down the up and down the aisles. Sometimes they have what you want, sometimes they don't have what you want. Then you stand in the line to give them your money, then you put your stuff in your bag and you carry it out to your car, you pollute the environment driving home again, you carry it into your house. I mean, if somebody can explain the fun in that, uh, I'd be interested to hear it. Instead, if you, if you, uh, this is, you know, this is pretty serious kind of stuff. I, I was talking to some international students in a class yesterday, and, and there was one student from rural America. And she said, well, in our, in our community, the supermarket is where people go to meet. So you go to church on Sunday, but you, you go to the supermarket during the week, and it's where you meet your friends. A lot of people, uh, and I, maybe I'll talk about my own mother. You know, she was a she looked after us at home. She worked in the home, and she went to the supermarket on her own once a week, and she was gone for hours. And she was gone because she met her friends there, and she had a cup of coffee and a chat. So she, the fun wasn't the shopping; the fun was the social activity around the shopping. But does that answer I, your does that answer your question then, Damien? Why do people want to still go to supermarkets? There's a there's an organization, a company in the U.S. called Instacart, where basically you order your shopping from them and d- deliver them to your home, and they send you a message that says how much time this is how much you t- time you saved for yourself by shopping with us today. So if somebody says to you, "I've saved you three hours or two hours," you know, in normal times, couldn't you just call around to see a pal, or couldn't you go to a a pub and have a drink, or go to a coffee shop and and uh, and have a cup of coffee and a cream cake? So I think if if the value in shopping is only in the social, then I think that retailers have got a fairly serious problem. So then talk about some... So so I have two questions. The first being, I suppose, is the future of retail online only? People talk about it. Oh, it's only it's going to all move to online. There has to be some experiential uh, opportunities within retail. Well, well, there there doesn't have to be. That's the important thing because you can have experiential, the kind of experiences that we talked about, people meeting other people, that can happen in, in lots of other formats. You know, the reason why why the music industry in, is in trouble is partly because of, you know, free downloads, but it's also because kids today don't spend their pocket money on, on music. They spend it on mobile phone credits. So the money that's in retail doesn't have to stay in retail. It could go into food service, it could go into entertainment, it could go into digital. And what retailers have to do, and what they're really, really good at, is coming up with formats where the consumer is willing to spend money. So it is not that long in this country, Connor. And I, you know, I think I'm a little bit older than you. I sort of remember this. I, I remember going to, to Super Quinn in Walkinstown when it first opened. It was a, you know, one of the first supermarkets in Ireland. And it was extraordinary, the range of things that they had. I mean, it might be 50 years ago, but... It's only 50 years ago since we actually moved to this kind of self-service format that we're in today. And retail needs to, to reinvent itself today. And, it's for, and the reinvention is for, is for two reasons. 
One is, I don't think that the consumer, I don't think enough consumers have fun shopping anymore. You go to a store to buy a jacket or to buy a pair of shoes. They don't have your size. You're waiting for somebody to search in the in the storeroom. That's that is not fun when you can when you know you can get your size delivered to you online. It's delivered the next day and you return for free. Uh, but, but hang on, D- Damien. I could I could argue that going into town for a day out, myself and my wife, we love walking around, picking up stuff, trying it on, getting a coffee, wandering up and down the streets. At the end of the day, whether you buy something or not, maybe it's slightly irrelevant because you've had a lovely day out up and down Grafton Street. Surely we're all pining for those days to come back again. Well, if if, if there's any retailer who would like to provide that social service uh, of a little facility for... for, My wife and I enjoy that as well, uh, to wander around Grafton Street and to provide viewing almost like a museum uh, that we would go in and look at things and and have a little chat about it and then leave and go and have lunch somewhere. That's, That's a terrific idea. These guys have got to make money because of the rents they're paying, the staff overheads that they have, the expenses that they have. And that's the second problem. We sometimes think that you have that you in order for retail to be forced into change, that they have to lose all of their customers. If you look at the margins in a supermarket, the, let's just say a supermarket margin, it's profit. After everything is taken into account, what it takes home in a good year is about 3%. Yeah. Now, how much of its business, and, and of course the business model is built on a large number of people coming through the door and buying products. How many of those people do you have to take away before the economics of the industry collapses? Now, the answer is 15 or 20%. And if you want evidence... Look at how many record stores are, you know, that's what we called them in the old days, record stores, music stores. Yeah. How many bookstores? We can go on and on with the examples. How many electronic stores? The Great Pete's Electronics in Parnell Street, long gone. Yeah. Because nobody buys electronics in that way. Not because 100% of people now want to buy electronics online, but enough people want to buy electronics online or music or books to shred the economics of the industry and force the industry into change. And that's what's happening. So if then, if, if we accept that, that theory, then how, what, what does retail have to do? What are the technology innovations? You know, because we still want to go to shops, I accept that. They still need to protect their margin. So what are the innovations that you're seeing that retailers are considering to protect their businesses for the future? I, I, think, the, I think the first and most important thing is that you have to have a viable online option to go alongside your business. And I try extremely hard uh, to shop locally in my local community here, and it's extremely difficult because, you know, you can order something on on, uh, on Amazon and it's delivered tomorrow, um, and I can't even get through by phone or by technology to my local bookstore. And that's that. That's the first kind of problem. But what what retailers have to do is to actually think about. They don't. You got to think about closing the gap with um, with the competition. And the way you do that is by asking a really simple question. And it's not a technology question. The question is by asking what exactly is it that the customer wants, and what is she or he willing to pay for. So. That takes us out of the museum kind of public service kind of example. My wife and I, your wife and, and you, you want to have a day out. What is the role that shopping or looking at products for sale have to play in that? 
And I, I, I'll give you, uh, maybe give you one or two little examples. Please. You know, uh, Best Buy in the U.S. basically operate on a showrooming basis. So Best Buy is a big electronic store for those people who don't haven't been to the U.S. or don't know the, the chain. And um, so basically you go to the store, um, you see, you know, a phone or a TV or a, I mean, a, a computer, whatever the technology is. And there's a lot of people in the store, staff in the store, and they explain to you what the technology is, how it works, what its advantages are uh, versus the competition. And then, of course, what, what, what the consumer does is they take their phone out and they find the technology and they buy the cheapest. They buy the cheapest one online. What Best Buy does is it uses the store as a showroom and then you go to their website and they guarantee to be the cheapest and you buy from them. So that's um, providing so, providing kind of that integrated or omni-channel service to customers. So uh, ab- you can, absolutely, and and is that kind of what the future is? Is a blended omni-channel approach from from retailers where you have the showroom and you have then and you have then the the online uh, option as well. I I find it I find it very hard to believe that the future is as simple as that, because most retailers, if you think about it, not to be too too technical about it. Um, most retailers, the value of their business is, of course, in the goodwill of the business, the trading value of the business, but also in the capital value of the stores on their balance sheet. And that is the biggest barrier to change for all retailers. If you put an out-of-town site, which historically people are willing to drive to to shop at, and that has been a cornerstone of your balance sheet for 50 years, it's very difficult for you to say, I'm writing down the value of that, so my business is now less valuable uh, because I'm moving towards this online model. Unfortunately, that is what you have to do. But but you could argue in this climate that we're in, I mean, landlords, retailers, you know, city planners accept that the value of those leases is, is not what it was 12 months ago and probably isn't going to come back again anytime soon. I think there's a real chance right now for retailers to embrace the change because there's a very interesting thing happened during uh, during during the COVID crisis, which is a lot of people were experimenting in retail and in brand terms with lots of different formats and lots, lots of different types of small brands. And during the crisis, because everybody was frightened, what they did was they resorted back to the core brands. So if you look at the sales of in the supermarket in particular, of the core brands, the brands that we all know and love, their sales increased very, very substantially during COVID. And I think it's the same thing with retail. We all, everybody appreciates what supermarket workers did during COVID. Basically, the reason why we, we didn't have social collapse is because those people were willing to risk and frankly risk their own lives to go to work every day to open the store so we could get get food. That's what kept society in the in the Agreed. developed world Agreed. together. We shouldn't we shouldn't forget that. And but the the goodwill for that is not going to last that long. So what you have is this opportunity now to re-engage with that customer and say, what exactly is it that you don't like about coming to the supermarket? Well, I don't like queuing. Okay, well, in Amazon supermarkets now you don't have to queue. Yeah. You buy the stuff and you just get charged for it. I don't like when I get there that you don't have uh, the coffee that I like or you don't have the, the meat that I, uh, that I want. And um, um, yeah. so I, I think, I think a, a 
a capacity where you almost you could see in advance what they what they have. Yeah. I don't like carrying large boxes of washing powder home. Well, you know, we just deliver that on a on a um, uh, on a regular basis. Gotcha. I think it's those kind. You got you got to take away the reasons not to buy. Okay. Last well question, Damien. And, and sorry, we're nearly out of time, but I I have about forty seconds. What are the what are the issues that are stopping? Uh, or the challenges that retailers face, whether that be around returns or online or credit card fraud, what are the big issues that they need to address? They, they, they need to seriously embrace online because if everybody did it, the market for online would actually expand substantially, and that is in the interest of retailers. Right now, the problem is that you have a lot of bad online options, stuff that takes weeks to arrive, it arrives and is damaged, all of those kinds of problems, if you had more good competitors and fewer bad competitors in online retail, it would be better for everybody. Fantastic. Uh, Damien, thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. Great to chat to you again. Pleasure, Connor, as always. Thanks a million. That was Damien McLaughlin, the Anthony C. Cunningham Professor of Marketing at UCD Michael Smurfett Graduate Business School. So moving on, where some of us see a problem, for others there's an opportunity and more specifically a business opportunity. And that is where we see the entrepreneurs stepping in, the people who see the opportunity, who back themselves, who make things happen. And at Dublin BIC, we work with about 100 company founders each year from from very early stage, validating opportunity right up to venture funding. Um, And each week, as part of our programme, we bring you an innovator. It's our one to watch segment. And this innovator has spotted a gap in the market, is developing a new product to address that gap, and they're going to tell us the why and the how. And this week, I'm delighted to be joined by Sharon Keegan, who's the CEO of Peachy Lean, a company that specialises in leisurewear, sportswear, supporting the everyday, everybody. Hi, Sharon. Thanks for joining us this afternoon. Hi, Connor. Oh, it's such a pleasure to be here, and thank you so much for the invite. Delighted to have you. Tell our listeners about Peachy Lean. What do you do? So you got it right in one. We support the everyday everybody and literally what we do is we sell confidence in the form of spandex and nylon. And really, Connor, the idea um, was born out of a bit of a dark period in my life. So I was uh, I became pregnant at 33 and I um, fell ill with postnatal depression. And really to pull me out of that dark period, I used the gym and exercise. Um, as my form of, say, antidepressant. But it was actually where, while I was there, Connor, I couldn't find um, activewear or leisure wear that would fit a postnatal shape. Um, for any of your listeners, female or male, who understand this, but basically you would have a, a sh- bit of a shifted pelvis, what they would call a mum-tum, and, you know, lumps and bumps in areas that, you know, really weren't there before. So... Because I couldn't really find the product, I decided to design the product myself, and it really just took off from there. Now, not particularly my area of expertise, but certainly one would look at the market and think that it's quite a crowded marketplace, that there's lots of similar type offerings in the market. Um, What's the gap that particularly that you're seeking to address? Sure. Yeah, like everyone seems to have, you know, there's a lot of fitness wear brands out there. But I think what we're trying to do is specifically aim to the female that really the bigger brands are forgotten about. Um, you know, women of all shapes and sizes, um, particularly ladies that would possibly um, not be catered for, for in, the, in the likes of the bigger box brands. Anyone over a size 16, 
18, we go all the way up to a size 26. And these ladies need support just as much as anyone else. And yeah. um, I suppose they're really our brand messaging and, and, and what we, we are providing for these people is not only a supportive activewear range, but a, a messaging of support as well. So we're really getting these ladies moving for their minds. So huge, you know, a huge kind of um, connection with the mind and body, and really, these ladies are, are the ones that need to move more. So, yeah, we're we're, we're the we're the ones speaking their language. That's lovely. So it's not just the product, but but it's a support network, or it's a it's a peer group that that goes around that um, at that at that point in your life when probably you needed yeah, a lot. Exactly. It was really born out of, of a place where I was, and I think. Initially, when I when I decided I wanted to start something, I was in UCD Innovation Academy, and I I was I was in UCD doing a postgrad because I wasn't feeling too well, and I knew I needed to use part of my brain that was kind of disconnected. Yeah, I had been made redundant from a, a business I was running for eight years, and I was at home with this young baby, and a lot of my ego or who I was was like you know really connected with. Tied, tied up in the business, and, yeah. Yeah, and I loved it. Like, I love what I do. So um, when I really decided what I wanted to do, it was, it was all around a community, like building something that women and men eventually, because it's really becoming a big issue with men as well, but women could, and men could, express themselves, um, you know, maybe maybe um, express that they want to achieve something in life and, and network in a community that would actually support that. So really that's what we're doing. We're supporting women and men in what they want to do. We're encouraging them to move for their minds because that's where it starts, the confidence building and yeah. you know expressing yourself. And we're just providing a product that, that maybe gets them into that place. Mind and body. I love it. Um, tell me about the, the setup. I mean, to set up a new business is, is challenging. So what kind of, firstly, I suppose, how, what were the challenges that you faced, I guess, in, in setting up uh, uh, this business? So challenges, first of all, being a, mo- a mom. You know, I was a young mom. I had just finished uh, in college. I don't, didn't have very much money. I had a small bit of redundancy money. And then really trying to find the support um, for, you know, a, a young female entrepreneur coming forward with an idea that really, I'll be very, very honest, most of the male-populated um, boards didn't understand. So that was a bit of a challenge for me to try and express to a very male-dominated um, network that I was providing a product for women postnatal to start, but it really took off, actually, because it went mainstream when celebrities started wearing it. But, um, yeah, and, that was a real challenge. And, ju- and just, and just on that one, that. Was, you, you talk about it as a challenge. Did you have mm-hmm. to educate predominantly male investors, male, yeah. male kind of funders around this particular problem, and, and firstly, and then how you as a female might execute? Absolutely. It was um, it was a real challenge to try and communicate it as, as a huge market, um, an investable opportunity, something that was not just leggings, you know, or just anything really just to be provided for women. Um, you, you know, I have to really, you know, I have to try a few times, you know, I, I think I failed three or four times in trying to access funding or access courses or mentorships. And eventually I got the wording right. And really, I suppose the messaging in that is to never give up um, because you might not be able to communicate your messaging or even prove or validate your business firsthand. But, you know, never to give up on it because look at us now, we're 
selling all over the world and you know we're really killing it so <laughs> and, and, and t- yeah no, no really killing it I love it tell me uh <laughs> about selling all across the world because uh, we were talking earlier on this afternoon about the move to online. Tell me about how you developed your kind of global sales platform. Yeah. So look, my background would be sales marketing and, um, you know, Instagram was quite new, I suppose, when, when we started. It wasn't new, but I was very, it was a, a new tool as such for selling online. And I think now with social media, we're messaging women and predominantly women um a, w- a woman type messaging and also with the time of COVID um, you know one one piece of content for us could be shared hundreds and hundreds of times and like that you can be seen by thousands of people all over the world and now with online shopping Instagram shopping, shopping Google shopping and obviously much easier ways to access your website it can really spin out very very quickly especially with a product like ours Okay Um Tell me this, uh, give some advice to our listeners for those who are thinking about starting a business and um, making that first step is important. What what are the steps uh, that they should be considering? Um, so I suppose really get, getting your head around your business plan. Everyone always says business plans, you know, whatever. But you, like to, to access real support and real mentorship in Ireland and in the UK actually or anywhere really if, if there's a lot of European kind of mentorship you can gain access to now and funding but you really need to sit down and look at the scalability of the product you know can you sell in a global market space now because really that's where it's at you know if, if, if you're in the service industry you want it, that's one thing but you really need to be thinking on a global level because now with COVID it's a global shop that's right. what you're looking at okay. um, so I think when you're looking at your product can you build something that's a little bit unique, maybe small bit niche, doesn't matter how niche it is actually because you're, you are looking at a global population. Um, but when you're putting your business plan, plan always to be thinking of that scale. And really when you can communicate that to an investor, it doesn't matter male, female or what board they're on, that's what they're looking for really nowadays. And I think for you as a, as a startup, for you to sit with someone who can mentor you to get that communication in place. And Connor, you were one of them, by the way. So Thanks very much. For that. You're too kind. You're too kind, Sharon. Thank you. Thank you. Because um, I remember two or three times coming back to you with, you know, uh, applications for funding and you did absolutely help me. So online yeah. to your community, I'd like to say thank you for that. You're very welcome. Thank you, Sharon. <laughs> uh, we're nearly out of time. I have two quick questions. Uh, early stage funding um, to get you started. You, you, I think, qualified or, 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 or won the CSF competition with that you were a winner there with the the Enterprise Ireland funding yeah that was a real real help for us a massive massive opportunity and huge open door and Enterprise Ireland have been fantastic partners and Dublin Bic were fantastic in in giving us uh, investor ready courses and networking and and, uh, you know mentorship as well so yeah that course for females and and males actually it it goes across the board I think they have two or three years yeah, it's absolutely brilliant. Yeah, fantastic. fantastic. We've about ten or fifteen seconds left. What's yeah. the next big milestone for you? What can I expect to hear from you very in the next while? Well, I just ask your viewers and everyone to tune in to BBC One on the 29th of April, and you might see something really special. Ooh, That's all I can say. Lovely. We look forward to that. <laughs> Sharon, thank you so much for joining us this afternoon, and the best Thanks, of luck for Connor. the future. Thanks so much for all your support and best luck with everything. Thank you. Thank you. That's Sharon Keegan, CEO and founder of Peachy Lean. Um, 
I just want to pick up on something that Sharon mentioned. Uh, and as you know, with all sectors, we have a bit of jargon and, and sometimes that can be a bit confusing. So just go back over something we were discussing there, which is the CSF or, or the Competitive Start Fund and talk about that for a minute. One of the big challenges that early stage entrepreneurs face is getting early funding to develop the business, to develop a first prototype or to develop kind of the first, to hire somebody, the first one. And over the coming weeks, as we develop this show, we'll explore the various funding options that are available. Um, and depending on where you are on the journey, and hopefully we can bring a bit of sense to, to the journey. So as we were talking about it there with Charn, let's mention the, the, the CSF uh, for this week. It's an open competition. It's run by Enterprise Ireland three to four times a year. And its purpose is to accelerate the growth of startup companies. So the value of the support in monetary terms is, is up to €50,000 and that goes in by way of an equity investment into your company and there are other supports that go with that. Um, the process is an open competition. All applicants are considered on a competitive basis. There's an application form you send in that's followed by a pitch process for those people that get shortlisted um, and then there's there's the award process. The funds can be used to kind of reach a, a milestone, whatever that might be. So that might be developing a first prototype. It might be hiring a staff member. Um, and as I mentioned, as a successful candidate, there are also a number of supports, mentoring, accelerator programs. I think Sharon mentioned them. We run some of them at Dublin Vic, and that can really make a difference at the early stage of development. So if you're at that early stage, you are considering the startup and you're wondering where you will get some early funding, do have a look at Enterprise Ireland, their website, enterpriseireland.com. Keep an eye out for that next open call or do come and chat to us at uh, Dublin Big. That's the inside track on Competitive Start Fund for today. Each week we'll touch on other supports that are available and hopefully you, the listener, will find those useful. We'll take a short break back now. We'll be back in just a moment for our big interview with Devin Hughes of Buy Me. Don't go away. So welcome back to Startup Nation, our weekly salute to innovation, entrepreneurship and the technologies that are shaping our future world. Starting and scaling a business is tough, and each week we speak to one founder who's well ahead on that journey, who succeeded, to see if we can uncover some ingredient that might just inspire us or motivate somebody listening. And today I'm delighted to welcome Devin Hughes of Buyme. Devin is the CEO and co-founder of Buyme. He's a, an EI Entrepreneur of the Year 2020 alumni um, and an a industry thought leader. So good afternoon, Devin, and thanks for joining us. Good afternoon, Connor. Thanks so much for having me. Brilliant to uh, to have you with us. Um, start off, tell me a little bit about you, because before you started by me, uh, you had a number of attempts, I think, at starting businesses and, and kind of lots of lessons learned along the way. Absolutely. Um, for as long as I can remember, I've always I've, I've been what I would call a wantrepreneur. <laughs> <laughs> I've always I've always wanted to, you know, go on the journey of building my own business and you know, when I really, I first started straight after college and, you know, I, I found myself in 2010 graduating from the National College of Ireland with a degree in finance and coming right, right into a recession. And I thought, you know what, there's no better time to try and start something because, you know, I was young, I had no mortgage, I had no kids and um, jobs would always be there. I could always go and do a master's and try and ride the recession out even longer if I wanted. But I thought, you know, why not? Let's Let's cut the teeth and let's let's try and start something sooner rather than later. You were that you were the that generation around kind of two thousand eight two thousand and nine who the the great recession had hit, um, and and maybe there was some forced entrepreneurship. In other words, that the options of getting a job were not as widely available as they they then became. And and was there a sense that this is this is a great time because maybe I can't get a job in what I really want to do, so I'll start a business. Um, maybe a little bit of that. I mean, I always felt like I was employable i always felt like i'd be able to go out and get a job and i was 
I'm not like my my first job at a university while I was starting my own business was serving burgers and chips in the Hard Rock Cafe. Um, you know, I would work five till midnight Monday to Sunday doing my my part time job there, and then yeah. nine to five I would spend that time trying to build my business. Um, so I think getting a job and getting and becoming employed was never really a concern for me. Yes, um, because there's always work if you're willing to do anything. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You can you can pick up something. Absolutely. Um, so, but but you had a couple of startups. Um, uh, that didn't work out for you. Um, lessons learned from that before we get to before we get to buy me. It's all one journey. Yeah. You know, I think a lot of people think of a business as one static thing that you've worked on. For me, it's 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 been one stream of experience. Um, and every business that I've done, I've walked away out the other end of it with um, maybe not fistfuls of cash, but certainly a head full of knowledge. Um, and it's been it's been just an incredibly important part of my journey. Is that you know. You know, leaning into the ability of starting a business, but also accepting that the reality is is that it's probably going to fail, and Bus- being comfortable with that. Businesses fail; that's what happens to us. But actually, I love that piece around the lessons learned. Like it isn't a; it's a continuum of, like in life, it's a continuum of kind of picking up lessons, adapting, shaping as you go. It isn't a kind of a, a one moonshot and you're done. Yeah, it's, it's a graduation. You know, for me, I, I'm not. I've often said I'm not a militant entrepreneur. You know, I, I, I enjoy working for other people. I enjoy working for great companies. Um, I've always felt starting a business was a natural part of my career path. Yeah. Um, not a final destination, but actually just a natural thing that you should do um, as part of as part of, you know, building your professional career. Um, and for me, every job I've ever had, whether it's starting a business or whether it's working for someone else, I've used that as a learning opportunity. Whether that was, you know, working as a waiter in the hard rock, you know, you build the ability to multitask, work against deadlines, build build rapid rapport with a multitude of personalities um, at, at a given time. That you know, There's always something to be taken away from whatever you're working on, whatever you're doing. Um, when I started my first business, you know, I learned very quickly what it, was, what it was like to import goods from China, what it meant to sell direct to businesses, how to manage cash flow, yeah. how to deal with bad debt. You know, really just a, a wealth of, of knowledge. And for me, it was, you know, my first business, I, I lost about four and a half, five thousand euros of my own money. Um, and it was the cheapest master's in entrepreneurship I could have gotten. I mean, I could have gone to Smurf and paid 15 grand for a master's in entrepreneurship. Yeah. And still the four and a half and the five grand at that time hurt and will still hurt today. But the lesson and the investment into your future. I, I get a sense from you, Devin, that there's this kind of an accumulation of experiences that has led you to because by me we're going to talk about it now it is on the path to be inordinately successful um, and there's this sense that the accumulation of those kind of startups the learning the lessons the the kind of the working shifts as you talked about it's all coming together at, at kind of this moment absolutely i mean for for me i think i wouldn't have made it to where i am today by me wouldn't have gotten to where it is today had i not gone through those previous businesses had they not been a part of building out my toolkit yeah, yeah, brilliant. So, by me, uh, the mission is to bridge the gap between convenience and online shopping. Uh, I was reading up on it this morning. Um, tell me, what is by me? What do you do? So, by me is a free download app across iOS and Android, and we allow users to order grocery and household items from large enterprise grocers like Dump Stores and Lidl and Tesco today in Ireland and Asda and Co-op in the UK. And we allow you to have those items delivered store-to-door in as little as an hour by their very own personal shopper. But the big differentiator for what we do is that we not only provide the full assortment of your favorite supermarkets, we have about 35,000 SKUs available across our platform with all our retail partners, but we provide a personal shopping service. So our shoppers will go in,
they represent you in store, they pick, pack and prepare your basket on behalf of you and they call you if there's any items out of stock um, and allow you an opportunity to add and remove items as you see fit. So it's very much a personalized service, but we focus on delivering that big weekly basket on the same day rather than next week, two weeks or three weeks in the future, which is where the, the traditional market is. So the point of difference is, A, I'll get a personalised concierge-like service, if you will, on my on my weekly shop. And secondly, it's same day as opposed to place my order, get it three to four days later. Correct. What, so I think I understand the concept. What prompted you to start it? Like, what was the aha moment where you said, Actually, there's a gap because that seems like quite a crowded market. There's lots of people, even the big chains are doing their delivery services. They do it quite well. Um, what what was it in, that set you off to think, actually, there's a big gap here I could get into? Yeah, so I mean, we we have a very mature e-commerce market and the grocers themselves have been doing online for the best part of a quarter of a century, 25 years. Um, the best, the idea for Buy Me came for the, the place where all great ideas come from, Connor, which is over a pint of Guinness in a Dublin pub. <laughs> And I was I was with a friend, and we were chatting about the markets and 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 different things. My, my background is is the energy markets. I used to work as a, a market analyst. I used to work with uh, large pharmaceutical retailers to to kind of give advice on energy strategy. And a friend of mine who was in a similar business said to me, "Devin, do you know that the online grocery e-commerce market is worth nine billion pounds in Ireland and the UK alone, but it's losing three hundred million pounds a year." It's a dysfunctional market, and all of the retailers are subsidizing this loss-making channel. And I just thought that was absolutely fascinating because, I mean, the residential electricity market in the UK is thirteen billion. I couldn't believe that online grocery was nearly the same size. And what's driving the what was driving the losses at that time in in the market? So when I, this this is this is the rabbit hole I found myself going down in after this conversation. I was like, well, why is that? And what I very quickly realized was that the distribution network that the retail market had adopted 25 years ago was totally incorrect. And the only way we distribute commodity and grocery as a commodity um, geographically is we use shared infrastructures, one gas network, one electricity network, one road network. In grocery, we have nine separate distribution networks all trying to do the same thing with vans and warehouses. And what our vision was is actually to take the best practices of the energy market, create one shared digital and logistics infrastructure, and connect all grocery st- uh, retail stores and turn those into distribution uh, distribution centers. Um, and that was that was really the the thesis behind behind you know helping retailers develop a profitable and same day delivery channel. And we'll, we'll come to it a bit later, but arguably, if you can do it in grocery, you can do it anywhere. And you become you become a, a transport and logistics organization, not just a grocery uh, operation. Potentially. Potentially, yeah. Um, so I was reading a little bit about, about kind of some of your research phase. And you, you talked about going to Salesforce and you talked about kind of a lot of the research. You, you talk about spending still a day, a month out uh, in the field doing deliveries yourself. The, the idea or the, the concept of that deep, deep research before you get started. Talk to me a little bit about that. Oh God, it comes from failing four times in a row. <laughs> um, you know, I, I ran headfirst into my first business and did no research. I thought I saw a gap in the market for a reasonably priced electric golf trolley um, and ended up losing my shirt because I launched a golfing business in the middle of a recession. Yeah. You know, had I done the research, I probably would have realized very quickly that was probably wasn't the best idea. Yeah. Um, when I came up with the concept for Buy Me, I decided that I was going to be quite methodical in how I approached it. So, one, I was coming from the energy markets. I didn't have a background in technology, and I didn't know the grocery industry from Adam. And so I realized that I was going to have to cut my teeth in one of those industries. Um, 
I also knew that investors were unlikely to take me seriously as a tech CEO and co-founder had I no background in those specific fields. So I, 2014, I spent six months um, in the back half of 2014 researching the market desktop research, got comfortable that I had a reasonable thesis that was going to stand up. And then I decided to go and get a job in the biggest platform technology company I could find because I knew by me was going to be a platform. And so I joined Salesforce. I worked on their strategy team, working with large enterprise clients, in, coincidentally in the FMCG sector like Unilever, Coca-Cola, Tesco, P&G. And over that year, I learned everything I could about platform design and architecture while also validating the idea for, for buying me. So on the evenings and weekends, I would get my friends and family and I would go out to shopping centers and streets and I would survey consumers and ask them about their experience with online, ask them the biggest reasons why they wouldn't use it more or what would help them use it more, and, and un, just to understand whether this same-day offering would be something that would uh, connect with the consumer market. Um, I surveyed about 1,200 people. I got comfortable that the evidence was there and the validation was there, and then we started building the prototype for Buy Me. And then a year to the week, in February 2016, I quit my job at Salesforce and I became our very first grocery delivery person. Um, and in the first 16 months or so, I did about 1,800 grocery orders on behalf of our earliest customers. And that was where we learned the engineering and the infrastructure required to create this a scalable same-day online service, just doing the work ourselves. I think that's such an insight, Devin, for, for anyone who's listening and thinking about starting a business and having that that domain knowledge, having that absolute understanding of the nuts and bolts of a business. And we'll talk about funding in a while, but... You know, when you're going talking to funders, being able to demonstrate that absolute understanding of a business and the business model and the platform and the logistics, I think, is hugely important. Um, Massively. Massively yeah, so. Yeah. Um, where are you at now in, in the, the journey of Buy Me? Uh, over, uh, where have you developed it to? I mean, so today, Buy Me is the largest same-day grocery e-commerce platform in the country. Um, we operate across uh, three cities, two countries, uh, Cork, Dublin, and Bristol in the UK, um, Bristol being our first international market outside Ireland. Um, we have about 500 personal shoppers operating across those three cities and servicing upwards of 200,000 registered consumers. Why Bristol? Because Bristol looks like every other city outside London. Right. Bristol looks like Dublin, it looks like Cork, it looks like Limerick, it looks like Manchester, it looks like Birmingham. And what we wanted to do last year was when we launched into the UK, we wanted to prove that the success that we'd had in Ireland would translate to the British consumer market. Yeah. And getting product market fit in a city like Bristol uh, gives you confidence that this service will, will land well in every other market. London is an obvious opportunity, um, but it doesn't really tell you whether you'll work in a tertiary city. The characteristics are very different uh, in London than they are outside. So your, your thesis is that if I can do it in Bristol, I can do it in Birmingham, Manchester, Newcastle, etc., etc. Yeah, And the metrics and the learnings that you get from Bristol, then presumably you just replicate as you move from city to city. Exactly. So, I mean, ultimately, for any, any entrepreneur out there, what you're always doing is, try, and particularly when you're launching a new product or a new service or even a new market for an existing product, you're trying to find product market fit. Yeah. And, and it's the data and the insights that you gain from that initial launch that tells you what direction your, your service or product needs to go in um, and what markets you're going to be uh, able to expand to. That then gives you a sense of how big the business might be. Very good. Um, your, your customer profile, uh, who's your who's your target customer? I mean, who are you going after here? Who's who's using the service today? Yeah, so it's, it's quite a bright, a broad um, consumer base, as as you'd expect with grocery. You know, everyone uses it and everyone needs it. Um, but we ha do have a fairly clear demographic shown through, which is um, primarily female. About sixty percent of our user base would be female. 
um, between the ages of 25 and 44. So we're really servicing two core uh, profiles, which is the young professional and the young family. Um, because if you think about it, most, you know, those two demos have the least amount of spare time in their lives. Um, they have young kids, they have dual, dual jobs in most of the households. Um, and so time, time becomes a real commodity and a real value oh, yeah. point. Um, we also then, our consumers are primarily living in the suburbs and urban areas. We're not really seeing a lot of density in that city centre, that, you know, zone one of London, that really city centre of Dublin. It's actually the, the broader market in the urban and suburban areas, um, in semi-detached houses and apartments. Right. And how are they using the platform, Devon? I'm, I'm intrigued by this. Is this the notion of the weekly shop, the large weekly shop that, that would have happened years ago? Is that now gone and that people are, are using daily shopping with you and topping up as they go? Yeah, so the, the industry has segmented significantly, um, particularly over the last five years as technology has driven um, a lot of change. Consumer expectations have been changed a lot by the Deliveroo's, the Halos, the Ubers of this world, the Amazons. You know, resetting the expectation of convenience. Um, everything comes to you. You're the blue dot on the map, <laughs> and, yeah. and and everything is accessible. Um, and that's really what expectate what customers expect today. Um, but what I found really interesting when I was doing the orders myself, you know, we didn't set any rules. I wanted the customers to show me what they were going to use the service for, and then we would we would optimize for that. Um, and very quickly, we saw the customers were using us for their what they now consider the big big weekly shop, um, and that basket size is between eighty to hundred euros. Um, whereas traditionally, um, in, in years before, an average bath, a, a weekly shop would have been north of 120, 130. So you're actually seeing customers have more optionality. Um, they might get takeaway a couple of days a week, um, and they might they might go out. Um, and then so their 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 general weekly shop has changed, and basket sizes have reduced. And that makes it obviously incredibly difficult for those non-profitable e-commerce models to really scale effectively into the future because those consumer habits are changing so quickly. So there's a smaller basket size. There's probably a divergence in, in it's not just one big. There might be once or twice during the week. And then, as you say, some of that money is now going across out to takeaways and stuff. So exactly. if you're running a big grocery organization and the basket size is declining, the logistics or the economics don't stack up there anymore. Well, they, well, they never stacked up um, and that, that, that was one aspect, but the, because it was a small part of the market, the retailers were willing to, to subsidize it. But, but when I looked at this market in 2014, it was very clear that it was coming into a very fragile period because over the next 10 years, without COVID, the online channel was going to double from 9 billion to 20 billion in the space of 10 years. And economically speaking, that's a very small window of time. And that was going to create significant disruption for the existing supply chains and, and models that were in place. And the retailers wouldn't be able to absorb those losses at that type of scale anymore. The share, the market just wouldn't tolerate. And COVID presumably has just accelerated that. So what was going to take 10 years has happened in, in kind of, and is happening in the space of one year or two years. Correct. So you've had, you've had probably about three to four years worth of online channel maturation uh, materialised in 16 months. Wow. One of the things I noticed, um, you've done a deal with Lidl, um, uh, which, you know, for any startup or early stage organization to land such a big customer and um, that customer acquisition piece, what do you credit with, with signing up the big, the big multiple that, that is Lidl? That's a great question, Connor. Um, I think one of the biggest challenges for startups is creating scalable and effective partnerships with large corporations, because the reality is the nature of those two types of stakeholders is so different. Corporations are immortal. Their, their sense of time and, and speed and urgency is completely different to a startup that's working on a maybe a six or 12-month runway of cash. 
Um, and so you really have to align very closely. And, and the way we've always approached our partnerships with, whether it be with Little or Dunn stores or even non-partner stores and, and the rest of the retail industry, is just transparency. So being very clear about what we need to achieve as a business to continue doing what we're doing and innovating, um, where the risks are, um, sharing knowledge, sharing data, giving clear visibility to these enterprise partners about how their business is being treated and managed. Because you, know, you can imagine for a large, successful business like Little, with such a trusted brand, for them to place that brand into our hands is, is no... Um, it's, 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 a, it's, it's a big it's, ask. It's a big, it's a big responsibility. Absolutely. Yeah. And so I think, I think the way we've approached it is being very transparent. In terms of how, how that deal came about or why it came about, it was that disruption of the market. You know, Amazon bought Whole Foods in yeah. 2017, and that sent shockwaves across the grocery sector globally. The stock price of every major grocer in the UK uh, nosedived. And that was because the sentiment and the trajectory of online and the impact of the likes of players like Amazon were going to have um, reset expectations very quickly, and retailers all of a sudden had to think very deeply about what their strategy going forward was going to be. Um, and I think that, that was a big driving um, force behind the opportunity that we had um, to, to do a great deal with Little, who, who are our first flagship partner. So you get the you get the sense of timing because the the big shift to online is happening, and then you get the sense of of probably you executing and convincing very well with Lidl to trust us with your brand. Yeah. It is it is you know one of the things we see all the time is that difficulty for the small startup to engage with the large multiple or the large enterprise which has a different buying pattern. And I'm always intrigued when I can see that match happening. I think it's something that that we need to spend a lot more time on. Um. Talk to me about uh, fundraising and raising funds. Um, and I saw earlier in the week you had an announcement about uh, somebody new joining your organisation who comes from that world of, of funding. Yeah. Yeah, so we, we recently uh, brought Jan Harley um, on board the executive team as chief operations officer. Jan was one of the founding partners for Unilever Ventures, um, which invested about 500 million euros um, on behalf of Unilever into the uh, tech startup ecosystem. And so Jan has a, just a wealth of experience in, in venture capital raising. But I mean, been very honest with you, Connor, the journey for us in terms of fundraising capital has been has not been easy. Yeah. Um, Ireland is a small market, and because of the, the structure of our market, we don't particularly lend ourselves to creating big consumer businesses. We do we do great med tech and pharmaceutical and SaaS and B two B, but consumer has always been a real area of challenge for us just because our market is small so it's hard to reach levels of scale that, that investors get excited about um, we've been lucky in the sense that we work in the grocery sector and the grocery is, is worth 9 billion euro in Ireland alone so it's one of the biggest transactional markets you could be in um, but our funding journey has been very unique you know I started off I'm a firm believer in friends and family um, so I raised 25,000 friends and family I think if you're going to ask a stranger for their money you should be willing to have an awkward Christmas yeah um, <laughs> And it's very true because this shows that you're committed to the journey and you're not just... It's very easy to take money from a stranger. Yeah, Connor. yeah. you never see, so, never see them again. You won't meet them over the dinner table. Yeah, it's not so easy to take money from your friends and family. So I, I think that shows a significant level of commitment. Um, we went to Enterprise Ireland and we asked them... Um, well, we, we took part in their CSF, Competitive Startup Fund yeah. Program, and they gave us 50,000 euros. So that gave us 75. And then I went to the one angel investor that I knew, so a good friend of mine, Ona Byrne, who had, who had exited Relex. Um, which was a very successful fintech startup in Ireland. Um, I asked him if he would invest with us um, at an additional 25 to give me 100K. And when I got to the 100K, I knew that I had 12 months 
Yeah. And that's when I quit my job in Salesforce and I knew I had 12 months to find product market fit. Um, I managed to get the business going and we operated for about 18 months because we were generating, re- generating revenue from day one. Um, and in June 2017, I ran out of money. <laughs> right. Um, I, and the problem I had was that you know, we were early to the market. Grocery was a very boring sector. It wasn't the type of industry. It wasn't the uh, spotlighted industry that it is now. It was kind of uh, disregarded, particularly by the investor market. Um, and I was finding it hard to find investors to back the business. Um, but one stakeholder in the market did recognize the opportunity, and that was Unilever. And okay. so before we ran out of money in June 2017, Unilever acquired 3% of the business, invested, injected 100K of capital to keep us alive and keep us going. Um, five months after that, Amazon bought Whole Foods. Um, we landed our deal with Lidl. And then Eamon Quinn and Scott Weaver's Rice, um, the ex-CEO from Morrisons.com, they led a seed round of €850,000 into the business. Um, and that allows us to get our first big injection of capital and begin to scale. Um, since then, we've raised $10.5 million. Wow. Um, $8 million of that came last year um, and was led by WeChief, which is the venture vehicle for uh, Hugh Grosner, the Duke of Westminster. Um, and big, we've had a, big names. You know, big, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've been incredibly lucky to have some incredible venture partners and investors join us on the journey. Um, and we've, we've really built out not just a great executive team who really understand this type of, this type of business, um, but we have a, an incredible shareholder base. Um, and they, and many of our investors have invested in us multiple times over the last uh, five years. I'm struck by the notion of timing. And as you went into the valley of death and are running out of money, uh, you know, then things start to happen. Amazon uh, make their purchase and suddenly people start to look differently at, at the grocery market. And, you know, you come out of that trough relatively quickly, both because of timing and, and I guess because of your execution as well. Yeah, timing is a very important aspect of it. And, and, and again, getting comfortable with that sense of failure, Connor, is really important because, you know, June 2017, I sat in Starbucks for 12 hours, pay, did my last payroll and had no more money left in the account. I was waiting for Unilever's 100K to land. <laughs> Um, but for me, you know, it was seeing failure and looking at it. I was just like greeting an old friend. Yeah. You know, you get comfortable with that environment and you realize that it's not the end of the world. And if, you know, things don't work out, you always go get a job. You know, as long as, as, long as you, you know, keep the perspective, um, you don't, it won't shake you and you'll get comfortable in that environment. And you've, and you've kind of done it, I'll use the word honestly, but you've, you've, you've respected the money, you've, you've put in your best shift, you've really tried to make it work, and you know sometimes thing, things just don't work out. It's a great perspective to have. Speaking about perspective, we're nearly out of time. I have two questions. The first one is congratulations. Uh, you have a new arrival in your life. I do, yeah. yeah we had our, our little boy arrived um, in October of last year. He's now six months old yesterday. So not alone with the business, but you've also got sleepless nights on the personal <laughs> side too. Absolutely. What's it like living on about an hour's sleep a night, David? Do you know what? I have, I have a very supportive partner. My wife is, uh, is absolutely incredible. Um, and, you know, we've, we're, we're doing a bloody good job of it. And I'm, I'm, I'm very lucky to, to be able to still continue to focus on the business. while and, and even in the climate that we're in now, working from home, I get to spend a huge amount of time with them, um, which I think, you know, is a massive silver lining. Which is fantastic. Enjoy that time ahead. Last question I'll ask you. We ask all our interview guests to finish us off with a piece of advice for, for aspiring entrepreneurs. So I'll ask you uh, the same. Um, as a successful startup founder, um, what's the one thing that you think helped you get there? Characteristic mindset? What was it or what's what sets you aside, do you think? Um, two things, I think. Repetition and 
the ability to hear criticism yeah. and filter the opinion from the fact. So when I say repetition, like starting a business, it, like entrepreneurship is not uh, something you're born with. It's a muscle that's developed over time. Yeah. Um, and the more you do it and the more you flex that muscle, the stronger it becomes, the faster it becomes. So the sooner you start on your journey and get the first business and second business and third idea and fourth idea out of the way, that muscle starts to become quite developed and it becomes easier and easier every time you do it. So that's the repetition of it. And then the other piece of advice is being able to take criticism because if you can't let your idea out there in the world for people to kick around, you'll never be able to refine it. Um, and so you you need to be able to put it out there. You need to allow people to, to give it a kicking. And you need to be able to separate what's opinion, what's bias, yeah. and, and, and uneducated from people when they're, they're, when they're giving advice back to you, or what's fact. What's a, what's a piece of market intel that they're giving you that's going to make a difference and going to allow you to iterate on your idea to make it better. Brilliant. Devin, thank you so much for joining us this afternoon and the very best of luck with Buy Me and with the family. That is Devin Hughes, the CEO and founder of Buy Me. Well, that's it for this week. I hope you enjoyed the discussions. I hope you enjoyed uh, getting an understanding of of founders and their journeys. And please do join us next week uh, where we will be picking another topic and looking at it in detail with our guest contributors and experts. We hope that the stories you heard today will inspire you. And if you are thinking of scaling an innovative startup and you would like support, absolutely get in touch with us at startup at dublinbic.ie. I look forward to your company next Sunday at 12 on Startup Nation. 